Thank you so much, Josh. Um, it is a privilege to be with you. I think I've been to every one of the uh, camps you've had at Glorietta and uh, was only able to come in for a day, but really just a great joy for me to be here with you. You having a good time? Um, you guys have taken on a significantly large subject, um, one story, which goes from Genesis to Revelation. Trying to wrap that up in a few days is a no small task. And on top of that, I have been uh, assigned a responsibility, so I want you to help me with this this morning, okay? So get your Bible handy. Um, and in a place on your lap where you can move a little quickly, because I want to take you through some portions of Scripture that I think are so very, very important. The question that um, we're going to be endeavoring to answer today is a simple one, but one that perhaps most Christians wouldn't know how to answer. It is this, what is the present work of the Lord Jesus? What is the present work of the Lord Jesus? We all know about his virgin birth. We all, going back before that, know about his eternal existence as the second member of the Trinity, as the Son of the Father. We all know that he was born a man, but not just a man. He was born not only the Son of Man, the Son of Mary, but the Son of God. So He is the God-Man. We know the accounts of the Annunciation from angels that God had come to earth. We know the uniqueness of the fact that He will be identified by the prophets as the Father of eternity, the very babe who was born in Bethlehem. We know uh, something of the details of His birth. We know about the angels and the shepherds and the star and we know about Herod. We know all of those things about his birth. And we know a lot about his life because we have four accounts of his life, actually five if you throw Isaiah 53 in, but we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have a lot of commentary about what's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, and a lot more explanation of his life and ministry from the epistles of the New Testament. So we know a lot about his life. We also know about his death, and his death was not just an ordinary death, not the death of a noble martyr, but a substitutionary death. He died in the place of those who were his people. He bore their sins in his own body. We know about his burial. We know about his bodily resurrection. We know that he had a glorified body. He could walk through walls, and yet he could eat. He could be touched and still had scars, and yet he could transport himself instantaneously into heaven. We know about that. We know about His ascension. We know about His exaltation to the right hand of the throne of God. And we also know about His return. We are very aware of the fact that in the book of Acts, that when He is leaving in His ascension, the Word comes from heaven to the disciples who are watching, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. So we know about His second coming. We live in the light of that. That's our hope, that Jesus will return. We know He will return for His church, gather the church to Himself, and then He will come back seven years or so later and set up His kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, 
the end of that kingdom, He will destroy the final rebellion of Satan and all who followed Him. The entire universe will be uncreated in a split second. It will go out of existence, and in another split second, He will create a new heaven and a new earth, and that's the eternal state. We, we know that great story. We know it all began, of course, in the garden, and it all consummates in the new heaven and the new earth. But there's one aspect of His ministry that somehow gets lost in all of this, and that is His present ministry. We understand about the significance of His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His bodily resurrection to provide redemption for us. We understand about His return. But what about now? What is He doing now? Is He just hanging around? In heaven, since He sort of turned everything over to the Holy Spirit, and He said, when I go back to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He did that on the day of Pentecost, and every believer since then has been under the influence and direction of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So is He sort of on vacation? Does He get some time off because of what He accomplished when He was here? What exactly is Jesus doing? Um, well, for one thing, um, Hebrews 1 says, he is upholding the universe by the word of His power. That is to say that He sustains the existence of the entire universe. No small task. I don't even know what that means, except that apart from His power infused into every molecule of this created universe, it would disintegrate as we see it doing when He releases that power and lets itself implode as Peter writes when he says, the elements will melt with fervent heat and the universe will go out of existence. In the split second that he doesn't hold it together anymore, it'll come apart. So the universe is being sustained, not because there are natural laws, but because the Son of God holds it together. There is no such thing as natural law. Natural law cannot sustain itself. Natural law is simply the way the universe operates because God created it and sustains it that way. That's divine law operating in nature. There's no such thing as natural law. When you think about something as natural as a child being born, you would think, well, that's pretty natural. A mom and a dad have a baby, and that's very natural. No, it's not very natural. It's supernatural because it's the creation. The creation of a person that heretofore did not exist. Yes, there are chromosomal connections between the male and the female, but the person living inside that physicality is a creation of God and a creation in His own image. Every plant, every flower, every blade of grass grows from our perspective in the course of the way natural law operates. But natural law can only operate if the one who holds it together holds it together. And when he stops holding it together, it'll come apart in an implosion of the atoms of this entire universe in an incomparable holocaust. So one thing he's doing now is holding everything together, everything. I flew down here. and. He held the plane up. Now you say, no, that's no, a flight science held it up. No, God sustains the laws that make flight possible. 
So he's fairly busy. He's not on vacation. Another thing he promised he would do after his resurrection and before his second coming in John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's doing that. I go to prepare a place for you. The disciples said, you don't want to go away. We, we need you. He says, no, I have to go, and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. He said that over 2,000 years ago. Now, how long did it take him to do that? Is he still doing that? When he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, was that a long job? I can't imagine that it was since he created the entire universe in six days. In fact, it didn't even take six days. He created everything by the word of his mouth. He spoke everything to exist, into existence in a split second. And the rest of the 23-plus hours was just the realization that that had been created in a split second. He created the universe in a matter of six creative outbursts in milliseconds. So how long would it take for him to prepare a place for us? How long does it take for him to get the room in the Father's house ready? Not long. So we do know that he has an ongoing ministry of sustaining the existence of the very universe he created that cannot sustain itself. And we do know, because we see the universe in this fallen world on the brink of destruction all the time. We just went through a series of earthquakes in Southern California. The reason those earthquakes aren't more devastating and completely devastating and completely destructive is because the Lord restrains them by the upholding power that He exerts on the creation. So He is holding up everything that exists, and He is preparing a place for us. That didn't take very long. In fact, He'll create a new heaven and a new earth in a matter of a split second in the future. So just exactly what else is He doing? Well, I want you to understand this clearly, so I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 2. This is going to answer the question, what is the Lord doing now? Tell me about this part of the story. Now in the book of Hebrews, we learn that our Lord Jesus is identified as our great high priest, our great high priest, our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, we don't know much about high priests because we don't have any in the true church. In Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Two things. He is a great high priest. High priest does two things. One, he makes a sacrifice. He makes an offering, a satisfactory offering for the sins of the people. Two, he is able to come to the aid of those who are the people of God in the midst of their struggles, tests, and temptations. 
Now, the best way for us to understand the work of a high priest would be to go back. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. If we want to understand what our Lord is doing now, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Just going to read through the first uh, 12 verses. You can listen, follow along. Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. This is the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron and his descendants constituted the priesthood. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. All right, so here we, we meet the first priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, and they are priests to God. They have a responsibility to represent God. They wear special garments to identify them in this unique representation. Verse 4, these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, all the priests, that he may minister as priests to me. They shall take the gold, the blue, the purple, the scarlet material, the fine linen. They shall make the ephod of gold. Uh, that's a kind of a, a large breastplate of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends that it may be joined. So it drapes over the shoulders of the high priest. The skillful woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. All right, this is the outfit of the high priest. Notice this. He's got special jewels with 12 stones on his shoulders and on his heart. They're held in place by straps over his shoulders. Well, what is this telling us? This is telling us, very important, that the job of the priest was to represent the people. Those stones, 12 stones, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So he carried on his shoulders and on his heart the people of Israel. The old covenant great high priest carried the people of God on his heart. That indicates his compassion for them. And on his shoulders, and that indicates his strength, his protection. On his heart, so that he could provide compassionately what they needed. On his shoulders, so that he would be representative as their protector. He was to carry them in his heart and carry them on his shoulders. The priests did this in two ways. One, 
He took care of the heart issues by constantly leading a system of sacrifice where sacrifices were being made every day, morning and evening, for the sins of the people. So he was making offerings to God, symbolic offerings to God that depicted the one final offering that would come when Christ died on the cross. But he was always offering sacrifices for sins. He was always taking care out of compassion of the hearts of his people dealing with their sins. Secondly, on his shoulders, he bore them in the sense of carrying them through the challenges of life, and he did this by praying for them. Priests did two things. He offered sacrifices for their sins and prayers for their strength and protection. In that way, he covered the heart and the shoulder. This is what the high priest did. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does. First, He offers a sacrifice for us, only it's not a sacrifice like the old priest. never needs to be repeated. He offered one sacrifice forever, perfecting forever those that are in that sacrifice because they are the people of God. Now, for that, He takes care of their heart, and now, to keep them strong, He bears up on His shoulders prayers on behalf of His people. This is what Christ did. He offered one sacrifice for our sins, and He continues to pray for us. We know about the sacrifice, that's the cross. But what He's doing now is that second aspect of priestly responsibility. He is praying for us, praying for our strength. Go back to the book of Hebrews. And we'll look at a couple of other passages that lay this out for us. In the verses that I read, if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He brings strength to us in the midst of our temptations. Paul says, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The Lord carries us through our temptations. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, we read, But Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are. He is faithful as the Son of God to care for the people of God. We are His house. The Son has been delegated authority over His house to care for us. He bears us up through our temptations. Look at chapter 4, and again we, we learn even more about this ministry of the Lord in praying for us. Chapter 4, verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens from earth back to heaven, the third heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." So what does He do? He provides a sacrifice, the one true sacrifice on the cross to provide our salvation. He provides strength. He strengthens us in our temptations. He provides sympathy. He is a sympathetic high priest. 
who can be touched with our weaknesses. This is his current ministry. We read even more about this as we go through the book of Hebrews further. The Lord is again presented as our intercessor. Chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and was heard because of his piety. He prayed to God for himself and God heard him. And if God heard him, God hears all who are in him. This is simply to understand the priestly work of our Lord. He was a high priest who, look at verse 9, chapter 5, having been made perfect through His suffering, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. All right, He provided a sacrifice. He provides strength as our high priest. He provides sympathy as our high priest. He provides salvation, chapter 5, verse 9. He is the source of eternal salvation. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, that is, in Christ, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek." Now, just to draw out of that, this indicates to us that not only is He our Savior providing salvation, but He is our security. He is our security. He has accomplished everything that God wanted Him to accomplish. He then entered into the holy place, took His place in the presence of God, and became our anchor as the high priest who intercedes for us forever. He will bring us to eternal glory. Chapter 7, you can see that this is a significant theme. Look at verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They're all temporary because they all died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, never dies, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to stop there. Why is it that you can trust your way to heaven is secure? Why? Because of something you did? Because you prayed a prayer? Because you believed? Because you've trusted Christ? Yes, you're required to do all of that. But you could not do that on your own. You could not believe on your own. You don't have the capacity or the will to do that in your fallen condition. God made you willing. God opened your blind eyes. God gave life to your dead soul. God made you alive. He saved you. 
And it is the same power that is required to get you from that point to heaven. He didn't just save you and then say, okay, you're, you're set. Don't need to be concerned about you. No. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. How? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. There's only one reason that you will get to heaven. That is not because you believed in Christ. It is because Christ continually lives to intercede for you to make sure you get there. Just as I said earlier, He holds the entire universe together, and if He let go of it, it would disintegrate in a split second. He holds your eternal life in the palms of His own spiritual hands. The only reason any believer makes it to heaven is because the Lord upholds that believer, upholds that eternal life, upholds that faith to the very end. He sustains us, secures us, because He ever lives to make intercession for us. This is His ministry to us. What is He doing now? For one thing, He's holding the entire universe together. And for another thing, even more important to us, He is holding our eternal life in place. This is often overlooked. You think that because you believe in Christ and you asked Christ to become Lord of your life and you confessed your sin and you repented and you embraced the gospel, that that did it and by some sort of automatic result, you're set for heaven. That's not true. If Christ did not uphold your eternal life, if He did not uphold your faith, if He did not uphold the power of the Spirit that dwells within you, you would immediately revert to your fallenness and be catapulted forever into hell. It is not a small work that the Lord does with regard to the present work. The, the moment you believed was just the beginning. The rest has been the Lord sustaining you, making sure that you're never tempted above what you're able and always making a way of escape, making sure that Satan never overpowers you, that sin never overwhelms you, that your faith doesn't die, your hope doesn't die, your trust doesn't die, that your love for Him doesn't die, because if it was left to you, it would. I've said this through the years many times. If I could lose my salvation, I would. If it was possible, it would be inevitable. That's the folly of believing you could lose your salvation like some people teach. If you could lose it, you would, because if it were dependent on you, you couldn't sustain your salvation any more than you could gain it on your own. The only reason any of us is going to end up in heaven is because He ever lives to make intercession for us. And far better than priests of the past who all died, they interceded for a little while and then their intercession ended, you had to find another one to intercede for you. But this priest lives forever. I want you to um, look at Romans 5 for a minute because this might help to press the point that I'm making home to you a little bit. Romans chapter 5, 
And just a few verses from this really wonderful chapter. Verses, we'll start with the first couple of verses. Therefore, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by faith brings us peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. Now, take that word introduction. When you put your trust in Christ, that was your introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The moment of your salvation was the introduction into an entirely new realm in which you continue to stand. You now live in the sphere of grace. You were introduced by faith into that realm of grace, and now you live in that grace, and we, he says, rejoice or exult in hope of the glory of God. Why is it that you live in hope that one day you'll be glorified? Because you're living in a new world. You're living in a new paradigm. You're living living in a new realm. You're living in the realm of grace. You have been ushered into the kingdom of God, and the properties of that kingdom are incessant, unending grace. You stand in that grace. That's the idea that you are set there permanently and fixed there. Your salvation was an introduction into this world of grace in which you live, and it has to be a world of grace because if it's a world of law, you cannot survive, right? If whenever you sin, you forfeit your salvation, then it's not standing in grace, it's standing in law. But the reason you get to heaven is because at the moment of your trust in Christ, you were ushered into a realm where grace dominates. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So you live in grace, and grace continues to overpower your sin and its guilt and holds you in the hope of the glory of God. Down to verse 6, and this is really so important, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. Some people would dare to die for good people, but it's rare. But verse 8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. When we were sinners, when we were hopeless, verse 6, when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we were unrighteous, Christ died for us. Why? Because He loved us, right? God so loved the world. So Christ loved us and died for us while we were yet sinners. Follow that into verse 9. This is stunning. Much more than, wait a minute, much more than? What do you mean much more? Much more than Christ dying for us? Much more than God demonstrating His love for us in that while we were yet sinners? Much more? Yes, much more. 
having now been justified by His blood, looking back at our salvation, we shall be being saved from the wrath of God through Him. Now, you've got to follow this very carefully. Much more than the cross, much more than the sacrifice of Christ, much more than your salvation is the fact that not only have you been justified, that already is in the past, but you shall be being saved. That's the verb form. You shall be being saved from the wrath of God through Him. What that is saying is the much more is this. It was one thing for Him to give you eternal life. It's much more for Him to sustain it until the end. It's one thing to be saved by the death of Christ. It's another thing to be, listen, kept saved by the life of Christ. It's much more to be saved by His death. Much more than that is to be saved by His life. Salvation is not one-dimensional. You were saved from the penalty of sin when you believed in Christ. You are being saved from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin by His life. His death was the introduction. His life gets you to heaven. You understand that? So when you ask, what is the Lord doing now? What is He doing today? What is He doing for believers in this life? He is bringing them all the way to glory. What is more than justification? Listen to this. What is more than justification? Glorification. What is more than justification? Glorification, because justification was a moment in which God declared you righteous. That was, that was simply a declaration that happened in a moment. Much more power is required to get you to glorification. That takes the rest of your life, the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. You hear people say, well, if you want to be a sanctified believer, you've got to think about the cross, talk about the cross, look at the cross, have a cross-centered perspective, have cross-centered sanctification. I think there's some truth in that. I don't like that, though, because I don't think that's the greatest motivation for holy living. The greatest motivation for holy living is not what Christ did for me on the cross. It is what Christ is doing for me and in me right now. The greatest motivation to holy living, godly living, and sanctification is the fact that Christ lives in you right now and is sustaining your life to glory. He will bring you to the Father. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. All who come to me I will receive, I will keep, I will lose none. I will raise them all for the glory of the Father. If you want something that touches your life on a daily basis, you don't have to go back to the cross to find a motivation for sanctification. All you have to realize is that every moment of your very existence the Lord Jesus Christ is personally sustaining your salvation by His own power to bring you to eternal glory. And if He is busy doing that, 
by His ever-living intercession. How ridiculous is it for you to ply your life choices in the direction of sin? If you choose unrighteousness, you choose reckless sinfulness, you choose pride, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, you are basing, basically increasing the load of intercession that the Lord Jesus has to carry to get you to glory. You're just adding more compounded weight to His intercession. When you came to Him, He gave you a burden and He said, my burden is easy, my burden is light. Making Christ Lord really took your burden away. The, the light burden of serving the one you love and the one who loves you should be primary motivation. What kind of folly is it for a believer to then add weight, to add sin to the load of intercession the Lord already carries on your behalf? Yes, there's a sense in which you were saved by His death. That was the introduction into salvation. But you are now being saved all the way to eternal glory by His life. Again, let me go back just so you don't miss this. If for a moment you think keeping your salvation is up to you, then you have an erroneous understanding of your sinfulness and God's saving purpose. The only way anybody gets to heaven is when the Lord keeps them and brings them to glory. All that the Father gives to me, John 6, will come to me. All who come to me I will receive. I'll never turn them away. And all whom I receive I will keep and raise and lose none. The reason you will make it to heaven is because He will get you there. He has already, according to what Peter said, set aside an inheritance for you an inheritance, undefiled, fading not away, reserved with your name on it. It's already reserved. It was reserved from eternity past when you were chosen. You were chosen before the foundation of the world for an inheritance after the world is all gone and the universe has been dissolved and the new heaven and the new earth is created. That inheritance has been waiting for you since the moment of your election. The Lord will bring you to the point of justification. You'll be saved by His death and you'll be kept to receive that inheritance by His life. Because, as we read, He ever lives, He ever lives, He ever lives to intercede for us, to bring us to glory. Therefore, Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. You drew, you drew near to God through Him at your salvation. He is able to save you forever since He always lives to make intercession for you. You don't get there on your own power. You get there by His power. There's no other way to understand what the Lord is doing in, in your life and my life now. Um, this is enough uh, motivation for me. 
I don't need to go back to the cross and see nail prints and wounds and scars and blood and, and sentimental things like that, uh, although obviously those things were a part of it. it. None of that really was part of the redemption. The redemption was not in the physical wounds. It was in the sin-bearing. We don't want to make little of the fact that He bore our sins in His own body on the cross and fully satisfied, propitiated God's required judgment for all His people. We don't want to make little of that. But as far as motivation for sanctification and motivation for godliness, it's not something He did for me in the past. It's what He is doing for me at this very moment. He is watching over me. He is on guard over me. He is making sure that I, who have been chosen from before the foundation of the world and have an eternal inheritance awaiting me in the presence of God, get to that inheritance. That's why we live in hope. That's why we live in joy. We rejoice in hope as we read. You only have one illustration of this kind of praying that Jesus does, and it's in John 17. So we'll just wrap it up by looking at John 17. I I said a lot more leading up to John 17, so I, I won't take time with that, but I just want you to get a picture. Here in John 17 is our Lord's Prayer. What you know is the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven. That's The Lord could never pray that prayer because it says, forgive us our trespasses. So that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. And when the Lord prays, who does He pray for? Look at John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now I ask on their behalf. Here's the Lord's Prayer. He's praying on behalf of those who believed in Him. Verse 9, look, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. They have been yours since you chose them before the foundation of the world. I don't pray for the world. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for the elect, chosen by the Father, given to the Son. I pray for them. I pray for them. What do you pray? Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Not one experimentally, but one ontologically. Not one in terms of getting along with each other, but one in common shared eternal life. Father, keep them. Guard them. Make them one in yourself. Verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. There he is saying it again. I was keeping them. I was holding on to them. Not the world, but the ones you have given me. And I guarded them 
And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so the Scripture would be fulfilled. It was declared in Scripture that this one was a fraud, namely Judas. Quotes from Psalm 41. He goes on to say, verse 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Do you know why Satan can't overpower you? Because the Lord prays that it not happen. Sort of like in Luke where Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And Jesus' prayers are always answered because he always prays according to the will of the Father. So I pray for them. I don't pray for the world. I pray for them that because they're yours, they will come to you, Holy Father. Verse 11, I pray for them as I guard them. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, verse 15, but keep them from the evil one. I pray something else, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Did you know that the Lord Jesus right now is praying that the word of God will sanctify you? The Lord Jesus is praying right now as he always does, that the Word of God will sanctify you. And he's not just talking about the disciples. Go down to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their Word, whoever the apostles are going to preach to. And when the apostles and their friends write the New Testament, whoever reads the New Testament gospel and is saved. So I pray for the ones you've given me, namely the 11 out of the 12. And then I pray for all the ones that they'll influence. I pray that they, verse 21, they'll all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. Wow. He's praying for our true union with the Trinity. Verse 22, he says, The glory which you've given me, I've given to them. That's not future glory, that's present glory. He's put in us his own glory. What is that glory? Verse 23, I in them and you in me. And we're perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. It's one of the most staggering verses in the Bible. That the Father loves us like He loves the Son. Verse 24, Father, I desire they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. I want them in heaven so they can see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. This is how He prays. You, you should familiarize yourself with this chapter. This is how He prays for all of us and all who believe. That's what He's doing right now. From my standpoint, giving honor to the Lord Jesus Christ for such an incredible, ongoing, relentless, non-stop sustaining of my eternal life all the way to glory is enough motivation to walk in obedience. How can I dishonor that? I, I can, I suppose, have a shallow view and say, well, I'm so thankful he died for me 2,000 years ago. Right. We're thankful for that, obviously. That, that, that's, that's one thing. But much more is what he does for us 
every single moment of our existence to bring us to eternal glory. It wouldn't take but a few seconds for us, or milliseconds, to catapult ourselves into perdition if He didn't hold us together, any more than the universe would come apart if He didn't hold it together. And He gives us previews of that occasionally, doesn't He, in tsunamis and earthquakes and natural disasters. So what He is doing for us now should be the strength of our motivation for what we do to honor Him now as well, right? Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You that You have desired to sanctify us with that truth. We thank You for the work of the Lord Jesus now, guarding us, instructing us, sanctifying us, and bringing us to eternal glory. May that be all the motivation we ever need to live lives that honor Him, that express our love and gratitude. How grateful should we be that there's never a millisecond in our lives that He is not sustaining us to glory. May we live with the kind of gratitude that shows up in love, praise, and holy living. That's our prayer because that's His prayer for us. In His name, amen.